0: So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and as we do, would you stand with me out of respect for God's word as I read this morning's scripture? 2 Corinthians 12 verse 11, Paul says, I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you. Forgive me this wrong. Now for the third time, I am ready to come to you and I will not be burdensome to you for I do not seek yours, but you for the children ought not to lay up for their parents but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? They we not walk in the same steps. Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions backbitings whisperings conceits tumults less when i come again my god will humble me among you and i shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness fornication and lewdness which they have practiced and father we Just pause to ask for the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit supernaturally to be able to just be sensitive and receptive, to hear the voice of your spirit speaking things to our hearts from the word of God this morning. Lord, we pray as always that you would speak through what you have already spoken in your word and that by your spirit you would convey things to us that we need to hear and that we would be receptive to hear what it is you're saying to us personally and collectively as well. And we ask this expectantly together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, if it's often been said before, I'm sure we've heard something along this line that talk is cheap. And I think there's great truth to that. Talk is cheap. Typically, actions carry real weight and its actions where real value is at And certainly one area that that is true, that talk is cheap and actions carry the real weight, certainly that is true in the area of love, in regards to what genuine love is and what love looks like. And, and it's one thing to say, right, that we love someone, it's a whole nother thing to actually show that we love someone. And we all understand that reality, real love is measured by actions, it's observable. It has fruit to it. In fact, the Bible teaches that very clearly. First John 3.16 tells us this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So the Bible clearly teaches that love is foremost demonstrated by the sacrifice of oneself for the betterment of, of others, In fact, anywhere the Bible seeks in the New Testament to point to the love of God, it always draws our attention to the sacrificial work of the life of Jesus Christ. Even our very verse that I just read, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love in this, that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So the Bible always points our attention to the sacrificial work of Jesus to demonstrate the love of God. And this really becomes something, I think, that we need to understand because what love looks like is something that can be clearly measured in how we relate to other people, in how we treat one another. Now, that being said, it is also true that what love does not look like is also seen by how we treat other people and how we relate to one another. In fact, this sort of seems to be what Paul was wanting to zero in on in this section. You notice in our reading in verse 15, Paul clearly says there, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I'm loved in return. And Paul, again, is pointing to this reality, drawing attention to the reality of what genuine love looks like in the way he related to them. And he also, in the same section, is going to indicate what love does not do, things that are not characteristic of love. And really, this is to keep the believers at Corinth from being misled by those who were saying things that sounded good, but really did not line up in regards to what genuine love was. And Paul was concerned for them. Remember that we've been talking about in this section, Paul was sharing very openly about his life, about his ministry work in places unlike anywhere else in the new Testament. And it's all because he's having to answer critics in the church in Corinth who were trying to do what they could to misguide the people of God. Paul calls them false apostles, deceitful workers, ministers of Satan, And what they were doing was trying to separate the people from Paul by criticizing him and trying to lure them away after themselves to misguide them spiritually. And even as Satan transformed himself in the Garden of Eden in a very crafty way to deceive and to pull away Eve and misguide her thinking, Paul has said in this section that Satan himself has also planted at times his own little minister's among the church particularly the church of corinth and he says they're like little plants undercover agents of satan who whether consciously or unconsciously are being used as agents of the devil to pull away the people of god in directions that are not good for their welfare and these false teachers were using their charisma and their impressive personalities to draw people in, to lure people in, but then they were leading them astray in very unhealthy ways because they didn't have love. And once they had them hooked, they would misguide their thinking. And somehow they were also treating people horribly and justifying everything they were doing. And so Paul is an act of love, wanting to spare the people because he cares about them begins to very awkwardly speak about his own life in a way to give them something to measure off of and paul's been saying this is really awkward and again and again he keeps coming back to the idea that i I hate doing this this feels so awkward but if i have to give you a standard of what a true genuine dollar bill looks like so that you can recognize a counterfeit Then Paul says, I guess that's what I'll have to do. And so in this section, Paul's been discussing things about his own life to give them a healthy example of sincerity, of love, of humility, of what a genuine servant of the Lord should look like so they have that true standard to measure off of. So look with me back in verse 11 as Paul's kind of carrying on with this. He says here once again, he's already said this before, he comes back to it, I have become, he says, verse 11, a fool, a fool, in boasting, but he says, you have compelled me. That is, you've kind of forced me to do this. For I ought, he says, to have been commended by you. So Paul acknowledges here how foolish, as he said before, how foolish he felt having to awkwardly speak about his own life and ministry. Yet he says it was a lack of devotion on the part of the Corinthian church that they were not loving and loyal to Paul that had forced him kind of to do this. Paul, whose ministry focus we see all throughout the new Testament, the book of acts and his letter, Paul's ministry focus was to point people to Jesus. In fact, Paul himself said in this first letter of the Corinthians, I've resolved determined to know nothing else among you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that was Paul's heart to point people to Jesus to connect people to Jesus, to keep reconnecting people back to Jesus. And so much that Paul viewed notice boasting of oneself in ministry or doing things or behaving in ways to draw attention to yourself or sell yourself. Paul says, I feel like whenever anyone's doing that and he says, I feel like I'm bordering on that. Now it's utterly foolish. Paul says, this is completely foolish behavior to draw attention to yourself when you have a spiritual platform, yet it seems it was kind of the immaturity and lack of dedication of the Corinthians to Paul, despite the relationship that they had. I hope that's not the alarm I'm done already. <laughs> it's not my wife, is it? No, she's in a nursery. I'm just teasing. Paul says, man, this this lack of commitment on your behalf is what compels me now to have to speak these things about myself for your protection and welfare. And you can almost sense a degree of sadness in Paul's heart because he says here, you've compelled me to do this. That is to awkwardly speak about my own life and my own ministry. And he says in verse 11, you ought to have been the one commending me to these critics and false teachers there in Corinth. In other words, Paul's saying they should have defended Paul's character. They knew Paul. Paul came there, he planted the church, he pastored the flock for 18 months before he moved on in his missionary journeys to establish other Christian works. And, and they knew his heart, they knew his character. And Paul's saying, it shocks me that you wouldn't, in loyalty, stand to these critics and share what you know is true of me. Instead, they kind of opted for the path of least resistance instead of standing up to do what was Right. In the given matter that was at hand. And as Paul mentions this, it saddens him that the failure of their display of love took place. And here I think we do begin to get almost another indicator of what love does. As Paul addresses this, Paul reminds us that something that love does is this love chooses to do what's right over what's easy. The Corinthians chose to do what was easy. They took the path of least resistance. And Paul is so saddened by this that they chose to do what was easy rather than doing what was right. And unlike the Corinthians, who did not do what they should have done, they failed to be dedicated, they opted for a path of ease over a path of righteousness. Love does what it ought to do. Love doesn't choose what's easy, love chooses what's right. And Paul here is almost seeming to bring this attention to their to their welfare here. Look, he's saying love exercises commitment. I've exercised, he's gonna say later in this section, such commitment to you and you couldn't even defend my character when these people were saying false and critical things about me. And he's somewhat kind of saddened by this, but he says, I guess I'm gonna have to do the right thing if you're not willing to. Paul goes on in verse 11 to say there, for in nothing was I behind, and he calls them this again, as he said earlier, these most eminent apostles, though I am nothing, but truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you, he says, verse 12, with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So though the Corinthian church had become, we might fairly say, so enamored with the winsome personalities of these, as Paul calls them, Most eminent apostles. Some translations render that the super apostles. And Paul says, though you become so enamored with their winsome personalities, he says, can I just remind you that my life may not have had a winsome personality, but it did have spiritual power. And the dynamic of spirit anointing was upon Paul's life. And Paul was sort of bringing to their understanding here. Look, these unhealthy spiritual workers, Paul calls them somewhat sarcastically here. Once again, the most eminent apostles, the the Greek there literally indicates the super high apostles. The idea here is they were the celebrities among the church. They were the high-powered personalities, those who were well-known, who had great popularity. And almost as if Paul's saying here, look, though I may not have strived to have the same public image and popularity to the degree of these super apostles, Paul says, one thing I know, and you know as well, if you search your hearts, he says, is that in my spiritual ministry, there was evidence of the power of God. And as I hear Paul saying this, If I could illustrate, it's almost like Paul's trying to remind them, look, when I served you a spiritual meal, it kind of was probably like grandma's good home cooking on kind of common plates. These guys are kind of like when they present, they're kind of like a five-star ritzy restaurant where it's all about the presentation, but there's very little substance. And Paul says, which is really better for you in the long term? Would you rather have great presentation, five-star ever? I've only eaten at a few nice restaurants, but why is it at really nice restaurants you get a really small portion and they make it look real pretty and sometimes it doesn't even tastes as good as going to just a local grandma's diner where you get a big fat portion for a third of the price and you just get as much nourished as going to this. And Paul's saying, what do you want? Do you want all the presentation and the pizzazz? Or do you just want grandma's home cooking? And, and, and Paul here is kind of bringing this to their attention because he wants them to recognize the error of their ways. And Paul says, look, though, I realize he says in a spirit of humility, he says, verse 11, though, I realize I am nothing. In other words, Paul's indicating here. I realize I'm nobody special. Paul said in another letter, I am what I am by the grace of God. And Paul knew that in humility. But Paul also understood what they were missing. Verse 12, as he says, look, but what I do know is that the power of God is working through the ministry. He says, verse 12, truly the signs, the indicators of a genuine apostle, the idea is not these false apostles were accomplished among you with perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So Paul says the very things that signify the true mark of a heaven-authorized, sent-out worker from the Holy Spirit. Paul says, you saw that when we ministered among you there. You saw the authorization. You saw the power of God's Spirit on display. He reminds them of signs and wonders, miraculous works of the Spirit. He speaks of their mighty deeds, that is, powerful acts of ministry, because Paul was being used by the Spirit of the Lord. Paul says in Romans 15, relating to the same thing, but in an attitude of humility, listen to Paul's words, Romans 15. Paul says, I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me. Paul says, in word and deed to make Gentiles obedient, in mighty signs and wonders by the Spirit of God. Paul says, I'm not going to dare to speak of anything unless I can say that was just something Christ accomplished through me as a yielded, humble, willing vessel by the power of the Spirit. Paul knew his life was nothing other than a yielded instrument for Jesus to continue his ministry through by the Holy Spirit's power. And because of that, what Paul was reminding the Corinthians was that he, that's why he didn't need to sell his ministry. Paul said, I'm not going to sell my ministry. He says, I'm just going to faithfully, with perseverance, minister, and I'm going to let the ministry speak for itself. I'm just going to let it speak for itself. Paul says the impact upon people's lives by the spirit of God, is the selling point. That's the proof, Paul would say here. We don't waste time, he says, trying to promote ourselves as if we're special, because Paul would say, that's pretty dumb because I'm not special. I'm nothing, Paul says here. (laughs) So why would I try and act like I'm something special? We just keep persevering, he says, letting the Lord's power work through us to help people. And again, I think this becomes another indication of us in regards to what love is and what it's not. Love does not sell itself to seek its own welfare. Love does not sell itself to seek its own welfare. This is what love does. It just humbly serves people and it lets its actions speak for itself. It lets the fruit of love just be evident in the observable fruit. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, love does not parade itself. It doesn't draw attention to itself. And why doesn't genuine love draw attention to itself? Because genuine love has its attention on what? Other people. Genuine love has its attention on other people, so that's why it doesn't draw attention to itself, because its attention is always upon others, and it wants to keep the attention there. Paul goes on to say in light of this, verse 13, for what is it in which you were inferior ...to other churches, except, he says, that I myself was not burdensome to you. And then Paul says, as you can tell, he's kind of being sarcastic, ...forgive me this wrong. I'm so sorry by offending you in this way. So Paul reminds the church at Corinth, as we saw in prior chapters, he's being repetitious again, how he intentionally sought, when ministering among them there at the church of Corinth to not be any burden on them. Now, Paul addressed this earlier... He comes back to the same subject again, that though he understood and first Corinthians chapter nine, he writes about that. He understood there is nothing wrong legitimately with a missionary, a pastor, a servant of the Lord receiving remuneration and support financially to do the Lord's work. However, Paul also understood that that right is not something that has to be partaken of that that right to receive remuneration for the work of the lord is also something that can be refrained from and can be refused for love's sake or maybe for wisdom's sake or maybe for a season utilizing understanding because it would be more appropriate to not be a burden and at times we see paul in the new testament would opt not to receive financial remuneration as he was planning churches and doing different things. At times, Paul would opt to refrain from receiving any compensation, and he would simply grind out work as a tent maker to supply for his own needs personally in such a way that he wouldn't be a burden on the people, maybe in a startup community, in a work of the Lord, or to establish credibility because he wanted people to see the sincerity of his heart or to do things not to stumble, or to offend and prove his character. And it seems this was the case at Corinth. And Paul's bringing this to their attention. That during his 18 months there, serving before he moved on to plant new churches, perhaps, my personal conviction, is that Paul, seeing what was going on in the city of Corinth, as he's referred to in first and second Corinthians and all these high powered Greek philosophers that would come in and fill up stadiums and charge high prices for people to come and hear them to wax eloquent and speak philosophical things that perhaps Paul seeing that Paul recognized, you know, I don't want to be perceived as in the same camp as those people. And it seems in that community or it seems among these people here that they got a bad taste in their mouth. So Paul kind of purposely said, you know what, for wisdom's sake, I don't want to be a burden and I don't want to mess up my reputation. So Paul opted to be low maintenance as much as possible. The sad thing is this was being turned around by his critics who were basically saying, oh, no, no, that's not true about Paul. The reason he doesn't charge money is he's not official. I mean, if he was official and he had something worth saying, he charged the same prices that we do to have you come speak to us. And so this is kind of being flipped around on Paul. And Paul here kind of cuts through the nonsense. And he declares to the Corinthians, he says, look, the only thing I did different among you there at the church plant in Corinth is he says the only thing in which you were inferior, he says, to all the other churches is I didn't burden you financially. And he says, my sincere apologies for that. My, my sincere apology that the one thing I did not give to you that I gave to other places is I would not receive any money from you, Paul says, is I wouldn't allow you to participate to help me and my ministry team financially. It's almost as if Paul sarcastically apologizing in advance as he goes on. Look at verse 14. He says, now for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. He was about to come visit again. And he says, and I will not. Be burdensome to you. So Paul's admitting he's not going to change his pattern when he comes back to Corinth, especially giving all that had been going on. He says, Look, when I come back for a brief visit there, we're going to finance our own trip, and we don't have any intention on receiving anything from you. Knowing the dynamics, Paul says, I plan to keep doing all I can to be sure I am not a burden on you personally. Now In this, and in what Paul's conveying, I think the Holy Spirit gives to us another very clear picture of what love looks like. What does love look like? Well, what I see in verses 13 and 14, love does not become burdensome. Genuine love does not become a burden. Paul says right here in our text, verse 13 and 14, look at it. He says, I was not burdensome to you. And he says, verse 14, and I will not become burdensome to you. So Paul says to them, look, I made sure not to be any burden on you. And I want to continue to do all I can to be sure that I don't become a burden to you, which tells us very clearly that love does not become a burden on other people. Look, folks, this is how you can measure if someone's love is real or not. It's a very clear way you can tell if they genuinely love you or not is to pay attention to the fact that beyond what they say, are they burdensome in the relationship? Because if they're being a burden to you and being burdensome in the relationship and they have no conscience about that, that's not love. That's not love. Now, in the same way as we examine our own hearts, how can we tell if love is at work in our heart towards another person? Here's a clear way, because your thinking will be, because you love that person, I don't want to be a burden on them. I don't want to put extra burdens on them. And you begin to think about, how can I do things to try not to be burdensome, to not put more weight on their shoulders? Because what does love do? Well, the New Testament says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So love says, I don't want to be a burden. I'm going to try not to be a burden. I'm going to operate in a way where I don't burden you. And it actually does the opposite. Love says, I want to bear burdens for you. How can I bear your burdens? How can I take burdens off of you? How can I lift burdens off of you? So the Bible gives us a very good reminder here that love does not become a burden. Love tries to bear burdens for other people. That's what love does. Paul goes on to indicate this more in verse 14 to say, for I do not, he says, notice, I don't seek yours. I'm not seeking what you have, but he says, I'm just seeking you, you personally. And Paul here is trying to drive home this point again, that he didn't want to get things from them because he loved them. And what Paul is pointing out to us here is Paul did not use the relationship as a resource for himself. That's how you can tell Paul loves them. Paul says, I didn't want to be a burden to you. I'm going to do everything I can not to be a burden to you because I love you. And he says, and I am not going to use our relationship as a resource to get something for myself. He says, I don't want yours. I don't want what you have and what you can give to me as a resource. He says, I just want relationship with you. Paul wanted their hearts He wanted genuine relationship. He wanted an experience with them, to bless them, to have an experience and an encounter with them. And look, that's what love desires. Love desires experiential relationship. It desires to bless others and spend time with others and support and share with others and take burdens off of others. And for all of us to keep our hearts in check, listen, if you become more interested in what someone has to offer you in life, and what you can get out of the relationship with that person more than you are really interested in who that person is and just spending time with that person, something derailed. Something's major derailed. Good reminder for our marriages. Because sometimes all at first we want is them. And then all of a sudden, you're having counseling with me and saying, I'm not getting what I used to get from them. Th- th- I, they, they're not making me happy anymore. And all of a sudden it becomes, that relationship has become a resource. When did it become a resource? I thought it was a relationship. And love doesn't use a relationship as a resource and say, I want to get from you. Love says, I just, I, I want to give to you. I want to bear your burdens. I want to spend time with you and enjoy relationship with you. So be very, very careful. Paul says here, look, I don't want your relationship to be used as a resource in my life. Paul says, I don't want what you have. I just want to be with you. I want to do what I can to have a loving experience with you. And then Paul begins to kind of illustrate this. Verse 14, he goes this on to say, for the children ought not to lay up or provide or supply for the parents, but the parents for the children. That's the the natural dynamic. Paul says, verse 15, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, he says, it seems the less I am loved. So notice Paul pictures here his love like parental love towards them. And he uses this analogy of providing and selflessly giving as a parent for the child's welfare. And he draws attention to this illustration or analogy in verse 14 here of how in typical family life, the parents are the ones who do the providing, the supplying, the sacrificing to do what is necessary for the children. He says there that in the right relationship familial wise, the children don't lay up for the parents, the parents for the children. The children don't lay up for the parents. The children don't work for the parents, provide for the parents. That's not the way it's supposed to be. In a natural, healthy, proper role in a family, it is not the children who should be the ones working and grinding and, and struggling and doing all they can to make sacrifices to provide for their parents. So that a parent can be irresponsible or lazy or selfish. That's not God's natural design. The natural design, he says, we all know this, is that's what the parents do for the kids, right? Parents understand that. That's what parents do for kids. They're the ones that are supplying and providing and making sacrifices. And in so doing, that is done out of parental love. Out of parental love, a parent willingly spends great amounts of effort and energy and financial resources to provide for their kids, to lay up what their children need, to give to them, to even bless their kids in many ways to have a good life. And Paul uses this picture here of a parent gladly spending themselves in great personal sacrifice for their kids. And he says, and any parent understands that, the efforts, the times that you go without. To be able to give them something more. Or the times that you silently choose not to have this or to go without that or to work a little harder in this way, just to give a little more to them, just to bless them, to take care of them. And he says that sacrificial love of a mother and a father, you know, that parental love that gives constantly and selflessly. And it's never recognized many times, but by heaven alone, that expects little and it often receives little in return, right? But as a parent, in that sacrificial love for your kids, you just keep spending and you just keep spending your life and spending of yourself and bearing the cost because you just want to bless and benefit your children out of love for them. And Paul uses this picture to portray his heart of love towards these Corinthians. He saw himself kind of like a spiritual father doing that. And like a parent selfish or selflessly and sacrificially doing whatever he could. Paul says, verse 15, I will very gladly, unlike these super apostles, Paul says, they're looking for you to take care of them. But Paul says, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Paul sought to love them by making great sacrifices for them, doing what he could to selflessly spend his life, to incur great costs personally, to bless them, to do what was in their welfare, to pour out of himself. And this, folks, is the kind of love that Jesus calls us to exercise as Christians. It's the kind of love we are called to. Jesus said this in John 15, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. This is the kind of love we're called to exercise, not just as parents towards our children, but that we're called to exercise towards others around us. Sacrificial love. Just like the love of a parent that sacrifices and pours out to bless and to benefit others, we are called to that same kind of love and true love will always be rooted in a motivation of personal sacrifice. Jesus says that's what true love will root It'll be rooted in an attitude of personal sacrifice for the benefit, the blessing, the welfare of other people. And a lot of times we can tell the degree of love that we have by the display of personal sacrifice that we see going on. We can measure our own love towards other people. The degree of our genuine love by the degree of sacrifice and the display of sacrifice that we see happening. And the Bible always ties these two things together. And Paul says here, this is the way I love you. And I think Paul wanted them to realize this is what real love is. Not, not this stuff that you're, this is what real love is. He says, it's, it's in sacrifice, like a parent sacrificially loving their children. I'd gladly, he says, spend and be spent your souls and then Paul goes on to say and this is part of parental love too isn't it though the more abundantly I love you teenagers no it's kind of it happens earlier too <laughs> the less I'm loved right and, and we, we all kind of understand that dynamic that happens that as parents you know you pour your heart out you love your kids you do everything you can for them and truth be told and and we did it ourselves, when we were at different phases of our childhood growing up years, right? Even sometimes a parent makes great sacrifices, they display their love to their kids in incredible ways, and yet their child is unappreciative, they're hard-hearted, they're selfish, and, and they begin to behave in ways that that kindness of the parent actually gets spurned. It, it gets abused. It goes, Not only it goes unappreciated, but it actually becomes something where it seems like the more the parent shows love, the more parent gets hurt and abused for showing more love. And this is a very painful thing. And it just reminds us of a reality of love, that loving someone and seeking to display love to someone, and, and know this, is no guarantee that it's going to be reciprocated. But that's what genuine, unconditional love does. Genuine, unconditional love loves sacrificially, and it loves unconditionally, and it has no expectations, and it realizes, just like Jesus, that's part of the risk. That part of the risk to love unconditionally is you may end up even honestly getting hurt personally in the midst of the process. That that just becomes part of how that unfolds. But genuine love holds no expectations and just keeps loving. And let me say this morning. If, like Paul mentioning with the Corinthians here, recently you have been hurt in trying to show love, let me say to you this morning, there is one who understands. And I'm not talking about Paul the apostle. I'm talking about God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. Because if you think of anyone who has more love and has shown more love, and yet has suffered more rejection, refusal, ungrateful disregard in response, it's definitely the Father in heaven. It's definitely our Lord Jesus Christ. So my encouragement to you, if you've gone through that process, go to them. Ask the Father, ask the Son. Man, I've shown love, and in regards to showing love, man, i I've gotten burnt in the process and this hurts and I don't know what to do with it. Our Lord understands rejection. He understands the pain of that. He understands the experience of that and he can help to navigate the process. If like Paul, you've kind of experienced that same thing, the more abundantly you've loved, maybe the less you've been loved in return. Paul goes on verse 16 to say, but be that as it may, I didn't burden you. I didn't want to burden you. It'd make you feel worse. He says, nevertheless, Being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Now, verse 16 there, I think it's kind of somewhat hard to be certain what Paul is addressing, whether he's talking about an accusation that they made towards him or maybe making an admission of how he won them over despite what was going on. If he's making an admission there in verse 16 of how he won their hearts over, then what Paul seems to be saying in verse 16 there is even though I didn't burden you as others did, I still found a crafty way to win your heart over in love anyway. Now, if he's there instead addressing a false accusation, as some other translations kind of render this verse that way, where Paul's kind of addressing an accusation, then the accusation was they were conveying, people were, that Paul used crafty and deceitful means to exploit and take advantage of them in unhealthy ways. I'm not 100% sure what he's conveying there, and I'm not a theologian, so we'll just go on to verse 17. (laughs) Paul says, Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? Did that happen, Paul says? I urged Titus, I sent our brother with him. Paul says, Did Titus take advantage of you? did we not all walk in the same spirit? And walk in the same steps. Now notice what Paul does here. He says, can you tell me? Ask among yourselves. Consider. Is there any solid evidence that you can come up with. That he says that I sought to take advantage of you. When I was there among you. Or when I sent people on my behalf. Titus and others that Paul would send to Corinth. As representatives of himself and his ministry work. He said, did any of us ever do things. Where we were trying to take advantage of you? The implied answer, obviously, is no. What Paul's trying to convey is Have you ever seen that where any of us have done things to exploit your vulnerability or take advantage of you? Paul says If you're honest, is it not true you've seen a, a continual consistency in the spirit we had among you, in the works we did among you, that it was sincere love? There was no agenda. We were honest. And we were doing what benefited you. And I think as Paul's asking these questions here, he again is using his life as he's been as a healthy example to contrast the wrong treatment of these deceitful spiritual workers that were among them. And Paul, in so doing, is giving to us, I think, another indicator of what love is and what love is not. And by looking at what Paul's saying here, we realize Paul's point is love does not take advantage of people. Just like love doesn't burden people, love doesn't take advantage of people. Paul says, because we loved you, did we ever take advantage of you? Did we ever in some way, he says, exploit your kindness or misuse your grace or abuse your help for selfish benefits? See, Paul's saying love doesn't do that. Love doesn't misuse relationships. Love doesn't take more from people than what it should, because love doesn't use people as a resource. True love isn't going to use people as a resource and take advantage of people. Listen, folks, those who do those kind of things, they love themselves. People who take advantage of people, they have a love affair. Their love affair is with themselves. And so they establish and they utilize relationships to take advantage of people because they love themselves and they don't love other people. And it's a very good thing for us all to just be conscious of, to recognize if someone's taking advantage of you, a red light should be going off. Because love doesn't do that. Love doesn't take advantage of other people. Love instead, the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 13, love does not seek its own. It's not self-seeking. A spirit of love walks properly, Paul says, like we did among you, and it seeks to not take advantage of others. Love instead does the opposite. Love would say, what would be to your advantage in this relationship? Love says, what can I do that will bring an advantage into your life to make your life better? That's what Jesus did, right? Jesus sought to do what was in our betterment. So love asks, what's best for you? And what's to your best welfare? Paul goes on, verse 19, to say again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? Does it sound like we're trying to make excuses, Paul says, to defend ourselves? He says, we simply speak, verse 19, before God in Christ, but he says, we do all things beloved. There's a tender word calling them beloved, meaning he greatly loves them. They're important to his heart. We do all things for your edification. So Paul says, look, I'm just seeking to be transparent here before God. And he says, if we were to call God as our witness and God as our judge, he says, we simply want you to know that if we called God as our witness, he could be the first to testify. He says right there, verse 19, that everything we do, all things we do for you, beloved, it's for your edification. In other words, we're trying to build you up. Our love is motivating us to do what we can to try and strengthen you personally, to make you stronger spiritually. And he says, God could testify that is what matters to our heart, which again reminds us here of another beautiful thing about love is that love genuinely serves to build other people up, not to tear people down. And when somebody genuinely loves you, they will be seeking your edification to build you up, to make your life better, to enrich your life, to do things to add value to your life, not trying to tear you down, not trying to diminish you or do things to harm you because Paul says, love builds up people. It doesn't harm and ruin people. This is what genuine love is, Paul says. Now look how Paul concludes this section with me in verse 20 and 21. Paul says, for I fear, Again, remember, this is all out of an attitude of love. I fear less when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish. And he says, and then I think that I'm going to be found by you such as you don't wish, meaning his response. Lest there be contentions and jealousies and outbursts of wrath and selfish ambitions, backbitings and whisperings and conceits and tumults. Lest when I come, my God will humble me, bring me low. And I shall mourn for many, he says, who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lewdness which they have practiced. So Paul expresses here in this section his deep concern that when he arrived to visit at this next visit that was coming up, that he was going to be forced to have to firmly address the sinful practices that were still going on among some of the people there at the church of Corinth, that they had not turned away from these sinful ways. And Paul says here, uh, verse 20, I am truly afraid that when I come, I'm not gonna find things there the way I wished I could find things. And he says, and then afterwards, I'm afraid that you're gonna find me in a way you never wish you found me, because you won't like me when I'm angry, Paul says. <laughs> and Paul's saying, I don't wanna have to be a stern father. But Paul says, I sense that that is what's going to happen, and I really would prefer that you would yield and repent and turn from these sins. But Paul's warning them here because he loves them that he would not spare if strong rebuke was absolutely necessary because of their continuous rebellion in practicing some of these sins. And see, the reason is because love realizes that sin is not just dishonoring to our Lord, it is destructive to people's lives. And Paul says, because I love you, I won't spare to bring stern correction if that's what's necessary. And you notice Paul identifies here in our verses, really sins being practiced, and he kind of puts them in two main categories or camps. The first group of sins that he describes is in verse 20. And he refers to just indulging, we might say, selfish and hurtful and wrong treatment of one another in relationships. And Paul says this was going on as they were behaving very immaturely in their relationships. He mentions quite a list there in verse 20 that there were contentions, which is a word that speaks of fights and disputes over matters of opinion. Having different perspectives and rather than allowing different views, having to argue and conflict over views and prove that you're right and others are wrong. He mentions jealousies, which speaks of hurt or anger because another person is enjoying a particular thing that you're not at that time. He mentions as well outbursts of wrath, which speak of explosive episodes of anger, volcanic Eruptions, where you act out in intense anger. He mentions selfish ambitions, that is behaving in self serving ways, scheming to try and manipulate things to get your way in what you want. He mentions in our verse there backbitings, that is saying negative things behind the back of another, maybe to diminish them in the eyes of another person, to slander, we might say. He mentions verse 20 there that they were guilty of whisperings which speak of just quiet complaints you know just kind of quietly behind closed doors little complaints and criticisms and little whispering moments he mentions conceits which speaks of exalting yourself or promoting yourself drawing attention to yourself is important and then he mentions lastly tumults which is a word that just speaks of disorderly out of control behavior almost as if Paul says, let me just capture everything, if that wasn't enough yet, <laughs> just completely acting inappropriately. And Paul here brings this up because you can sense in his heart, as these sins were still going on in relationships, Paul saying, what's going on? That's how people out in the world live. This is how people in the church are acting. He's saying, this is what's going on in relationships among God's people. Paul saying, we should be living differently not like people in the world live. And Paul is shocked by this because we should not be allowing these attitudes and actions if we're walking in love towards one another. Paul says these sins in relationship are just completely out of line with God's people. And then the second area he mentions that some in the church had not repented of is very clearly in verse 21. And he's referring there to the practice of sexual sin. And he uses three different words there all of which relate to sexual sin. And Paul says many had sinned in these ways before, but they still haven't repented, Paul says, of practicing these sexual sins. He mentions the word uncleanness, which is a term that speaks of indulging sexual desire in any perverse or impure way. So you can identify it however you want. It speaks of selfishly gratifying yourself in a filthy way because of lack of control with your sexual desire. Paul speaks of there the word fornication, which is where we have our term often translated sexual immorality, which just speaks of any sexual activity outside of the covenant boundaries of a marriage relationship between a male and a female. So it can refer to sexual activity or practice outside of marriage with a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a fiance, someone you're not married to yet. That's fornication, the Bible would say. It also can refer to sexual activity and practice with someone of the opposite sex, outside of God's natural design, homosexual behavior and practice. And then Paul uses the term at the end of verse 21 there, lewdness. And that word lewdness is a Greek term that just speaks of brazen, shameless sexual conduct. The idea is sexual conduct that is wrong and inappropriate, and you're just shameless, The idea is no conscience. You don't even care, just perversity, free as can be, no sense of decency, just brazen, open, outright perversity. And sadly, again, can I say, these were current practices going on where? In the church, not out in the world. Paul says this is going on in the church, among those there at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul particularly addressed these sexual sins and already called them to repentance. And Paul says here, sadly, when I come, he says, I realize there are some there who have not yet repented of these things and are still practicing such things. There were those sinning in selfish ways and treating one another and practicing sexual sin. And Paul says, when I come, he says, man, I'm afraid God is going to humble me. He's going to bring me low. This is going to bum me out. And he says, and it's going to cause me to mourn, to mourn. To grieve, how could you still be doing this, Paul would say. You know, one translation renders this section, when I come again, I will be grieved because many of you have not given up your old sins. Hey, can I draw your attention to a final thing about love? And that is this, love can never be happy and it can never be content when people are continuing to live in sin. Because if you truly love someone, You recognize what is best for their welfare, and it is not living in sin because sin ruins people's lives. It's destructive. It's damaging. It hurts the person participating, and it hurts the person affected by it. And love should be deeply grieved, not, oh, I'm going to just act like that's not going on. If you love somebody, it's going on, bro. It's going on if I know you, it's going on. It's going on face-to-face because I love you, and I can't let it go on without telling you I don't agree with it going on. And I'm not talking about being condemning and critical and condescending. I'm talking about genuinely loving each other in relationships and saying, I love you too much. Not to address this, to let you know that I care about you, to to confront this for love's sake. Look, out of love for you this morning, let me say to you, if there is some practice of sin going on in your life and you have not turned and repented of that, can I say to you in love's sake, please, please cut it out. And I mean it literally like cancer. You got cancer. You can't ignore it. It will just grow and continue to spread. And ultimately, it will kill you. And sin's like cancer. And my encouragement to you this morning is if the cancer of sin is remaining in your life, Jesus loves you. Would you go to Jesus and ask him as the great physician to eradicate it from your life, to give you a new heart, because Jesus can set you free. He can set you free. Let's stand together and let's pray.